You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Just because someone falls to the ground does not make them spiritual. But I want to tell you, friends, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay? You may just stand there and receive. That's beautiful. No one's pushing anybody down. You may just stand there and receive. Some of you are not going to understand this. One lady was standing there. We're fixing to pray. One lady was standing right here. Prayed for her. She felt like a river flowing through her. Went home and got on the telephone. Called her best friend 200 miles away. And said, Katie, something's happening in our church. This is revival. This is incredible. And she began to tell her what it was. And her friend said, I am so dry. She said, Katie, you can receive. And then the phone went. Uh. She goes, Katie, Katie. Then her little boy got on the line. She said, Mommy's on the floor. <laughs> Mommy got hit by the Holy Ghost 200 miles away. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 4, The River. The Toronto Blessing movement that we're exploring this season had a lot of different names. The Father's Blessing, The Fire, The Awakening, and The River. And on this episode, we're going to follow the river as we track the spread of the Toronto Blessing. But we're not only going to learn how it spread and where, we'll consider some concrete ideas as to why it spread as well. In 1995, a pastor's wife from Pensacola, Florida, attended Toronto Blessing Revival Services in Toronto, Canada. Just days after her return to Florida, the longest-running revival in American history would break out in her church. It was called the Brownsville Assembly of God. Brownsville Revival would last six years. That was less than half the length of the Toronto Blessing. But like the Toronto Blessing, Brownsville featured this explosion of religious enthusiasm, mass conversions, huge international crowds, and reports of widespread religious ecstasy. I'm Evan Horton and senior pastor of Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida. Pastor Evan Horton took over leadership of Brownsville Assembly of God in 2006. By then, it had been around five years since the revival ended there. The Brownsville revival was 96 to 2001. But as the incumbent pastor, Evan Horton helped carry on the legacy of the Brownsville Revival by orchestrating the preservation of hundreds of VHS recordings made of these now legendary stretch of services. Yeah, the VHS tapes went everywhere. Uh, They had mass producers uh, in this room that would, you know, in 10 minutes, they could make 110 copies of the VHS tapes and get them out and people were lined up in the lobby after service to get the tape. When I arrived in 2006, there was one room dedicated to VHS recorders, high-speed professional VHS. There were 110 of them, and they were at 900 bucks a piece. So I had $100,000 of equipment sitting in a room that was now obsolete because nobody wants VHS to take with them and to take home. And uh, and then also, they, they also had television, and they recorded all the services. Lord, we pray for revival in America, Lord. So when I came, all the services of the actual revival for those six years were recorded on VHS. God, let the fire of God rain upon America. But as you know, VHS deteriorates. In power, in power. 
and it was in a non-climate controlled room. So the heat and humidity was in there. So I had them all transferred to gold DVDs and uh, made three sets and put them in three different locations just to maintain and uh, keep a record of the revival services themselves. The audio you're about to hear is from some of those original Brownsville revival recordings. In this one, Reverend John Kilpatrick is moving his way through a sea of worshipers who are jam-packed into the sanctuary. He's blessing people, touching them with both his hands on the top of their heads. Sometimes he puts his entire palm over someone's face. Some people fall. Some people don't. And because of these recordings, we can go back in time to the very day everything changed at Brownsville Assembly of God. It was Father's Day, 1995. Reverend Kilpatrick had invited a special guest to speak to his congregation, a revivalist named Steve Hill. I want you to understand that I'm coming to you today with an incredible excitement. The Lord spoke to me about this service on Wednesday around four o'clock in the afternoon. I was in my backyard and he came upon me and he said, everyone in the service on Sunday, every single person there that is dry will be drenched with a heavenly rain. Everyone who would like a refreshing from the Lord, you'd like God to touch your life, I want you to come forward, just stand right in here. Fill this whole area, friends. And I'd like for the musicians to play Uh, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Y'all know that? And I want to stay on this song for a while, okay? Rather than moving because it's a song. We're going to stick with it because I don't want them to be singing other songs and changing. Let's just stay with this song, okay? Why don't you start it, Rich? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I've read that at this point, about half of the estimated 1,800 people in attendance that morning responded to his call for prayer. The other half took the shift in the service to start making their way to the door. Now! Now! More! 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 Now! 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 More! Some of you, if you had any idea what the Lord's about to do for you, just get back. I've had God hit people already in this place, thrown to the ground. They're in heaven right now. They are not in Pensacola. They're in heaven right now. Just stay open to the Lord. Don't leave. Don't leave. A strong tower. The righteous run into it. And they all the name of the Lord. As Steve Hill had requested at the start of the altar call, the praise and worship team sang the same song over and over and over for more than 30 minutes. I've watched hours and hours of the Brownsville tapes, and it looks like worshippers in Pensacola were acting like worshippers in Toronto, shaking and falling and moaning, same way I was doing at Christian youth conventions in Kelowna and Kamloops, and all during the same time period, too, so we're still talking mid-90s. But having taken some time to really compare the Toronto Blessing and the Brownsville Revival, 
The most notable thing that they have in common, I think, is the fact that prior to the start of these revivals, the leaders of both these churches were extremely outspoken about their desire for revival to come to their church. I mean, John and Carol were actively seeking out revival. Just a few months before everything started in Toronto, they took a trip to Argentina. A revival was said to be happening there at the time, but I think what's especially interesting is that Argentina is a country with a long history of revival. This includes the Argentina revival back in 1949. It had all the telltale signs, claims of miracles, mass conversions, that sudden tidal wave of religious enthusiasm. Considering that, and everything else we've learned about John and Carol so far, I'm assuming at this point that we're all forming or have formed personal opinions on what you think their motivations may have been for wanting revival so bad. But just in case you need some ideas, there's theological motivations, like converting lots of people, hosting what you believe is the tangible presence of the Holy Ghost, seeing your church grow exponentially. Lord, in Jesus' name, Father, thank you for them. Wow, fire on them, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But there's also earthly motivations, like financial success, power, and fame. In the more than 25 years since the Toronto Blessing started, John and Carol have become authors of numerous books, they have a large and loyal online following, and they travel the world as speakers and overseers of that large network of churches they run called Catch the Fire World. And when it comes to John Kilpatrick, the pastor of Brownsville Assembly in Florida, and his desire for revival to come to his church, he went so far as to threaten to quit the church if the congregation did not welcome it. But it wouldn't come to that. The Brownsville revival started in 1995, and estimates vary. But over the next six years, Brownsville Assembly of God hosted anywhere from 2.5 to 4.5 million people from up to 150 different countries. Also, in comparing Brownsville and Toronto, I've also noticed a glaring difference. The revival services at Brownsville seem to be less silly, less goofy, from all the recordings I've seen anyway. The Toronto Blessing looked more unbridled and unpredictable. And I wondered if there was anything behind this observation. So I looked into it. It turns out there is. According to my research, the leaders of the Brownsville Revival were attempting to keep some semblance of order in their services. Outbursts and bodily manifestations were only welcome or allowed during what's called the impartation portion of the service. That's normally at the end, as the pastor or the speaker works the room, blessing and praying for people. But in Toronto, behavior there, it looks like, was managed quite differently. In Toronto, these screeches and howls and fits of laughter, they were permitted before, after, and during services. Okay, let's wrap up with Brownsville with one more question for Pastor Evan Horton. Can we talk a little bit about the challenges as a church leader of managing a revival, crowd management, the press, oh, yeah. criticisms. Oh. What's that oh. like? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, I've read all the articles. I've talked to the former pastor who was here at that time. It's exhausting. Um, you have to learn how to balance. Uh, do you actually uh, attend your, all the services yourselves? Do you preach them all yourself? Do you bring others in? Do you stay as the pastor? How does that look? 
And what do you do in handling those services? When Pastor Horton took over Brownsville Assembly, he went through the archives and found some pretty interesting articles. Rules for the line, for example, like no lining up before 6 a.m. Um, if you came on a bus, you couldn't just have one person wait in line and hold spaces for the other 40 people. So you could hold a space for one other person, but not a whole bus load that sit in an air-conditioned bus. You can imagine in July and August in Florida, it's 100 plus degrees and 90% humidity. People want to sit in an air-conditioned bus. So you couldn't, uh, you couldn't bring a barbecue or a grill and cook in line. You know, it was a, it was a hazard. You couldn't have, you know, because people would want to grill hot dogs and hamburgers while they were waiting to get in. Um, guys couldn't take their shirts off. <laughs> you know, you couldn't sunbathe while you were in line. Uh, just, just some crazy things that you just would never think of, but you've got you've to think of those things and how do you manage those crowds. The Brownsville Assembly received a lot of media attention including an award-winning in-depth investigation by Pensacola News Journal. But before I get into its findings, I want to note that Brownsville Assembly absolutely, 100%, refuted pretty much everything about this report, calling it inaccurate and biased. And I can see why. Having read it, it's scathing. And it raised serious questions like, were people really being healed? And was Pastor Steve Hill a liar? After its four-month-long investigation, the Pensacola News Journal concluded that one, none of the claims of miracle healings were medically verified by any doctors, and two, that police records showed Steve Hill had fictionalized stories about having previously been some sort of bad boy, drug-addicted outlaw. I was a drug addict for years. I lived on the streets of America. I knew what it was like to wake up in the morning going through withdrawal symptoms. I knew what it was like to wake up wondering what I did the night before. I will never forget the day a Lutheran vicar came into my room. I was going through withdrawals. He came into my room and grabbed my hand and he said this. He said, Steve, I can't help you, but I know somebody who can. His name is Jesus and he can heal you. He can set you free, Steve. And in case it doesn't go without saying, a previous life as a drug addict and criminal would be a very powerful and valuable backstory for a preacher like Steve Hill. But this investigation's primary focus was about how all the donation money was being spent. And it sounds like there was a lot of it. According to Pensacola News Journal, Brownsville Assembly took in, in total, more than $6.5 million in 96. And 86% of it was from the collection plate. That's around $5.6 million in donations that year alone. But the church claimed that neither it nor its leaders became rich from the revival. However, according to the financial reports released by Brownsville itself, Pastor Kilpatrick was bringing in close to $200,000 a year between his annual salary and the money he personally was paid for his role in his nonprofit corporation called Feast of Fires Ministries. After the investigation was published, this is where all the refuting comes in. Brownsville Assembly published its own two-page spread called The Facts of the Brownsville Revival, fiercely defending, especially, the accusations of financial abuse. In it, 
the church says it, quote, expanded itself sacrificially in order to host the revival and its guests. That included suddenly taking on staggering monthly costs, like $19,000 a month for security, $12,000 a month for nursery staff to take care of all the worshippers' babies and kids, and more than $7,000 a month for custodial supplies and to have all the carpets cleaned. But according to a 2012 Associated Press article, Brownsville Assembly wound up using bank loans to pay for a lot of updates, like a massive new sanctuary and opening up a school for preachers. And by the time the revival was over, it had over $11.5 million in debt. Ask any true Brownsville believer, and they'll tell you that all the criticisms and the financial scandals and the lies— All of it was just the devil trying to distract people from the real work that God was doing in their lives right there in Florida. But before we move on, I want to acknowledge that while I was researching Brownsville, I did come across a lot of blogs and posts from former followers who say they were personally and spiritually traumatized by their experience. So it's clear to me that for some people, their memories of Brownsville are dark and painful. More Heaven Bent after this quick message. Back in Toronto, another Revival 25 conference session is just getting underway. I'm standing in the lineup for the Atwell Center's extremely popular in-house coffee shop. The lineup's so long that it stretches all the way out here into the lobby. Lucky for me, that means I'm in the lobby when John and Carol arrive. No matter how I might feel about religion and the church today, it's pretty impressive how they grew that converted warehouse building near the end of a runway into all of this. And again, the Atwell Center is not just any old church. It's the headquarters for that large network of revivalist churches around the world. It's got that Hoppin bookstore, the Bible school, From appearances, this is a very successful operation. Carol looks warm and chic coming in from the cold, and John takes off his coat to reveal a signature bright pattern dress shirt. I'm standing here looking at them, reminded of all the research I've done into these two. I know in 1981, they planted their first church together in Stratford, Ontario. Stratford is Carol's hometown, almost two hours outside Toronto. I know in 88, they started up what they called a kinship group in Toronto, a group that would become Toronto Airport Vineyard. And they were about a 350-member congregation by the time the revival broke out. That was back when they still met in that converted storefront warehouse, near the end of a runway at Pearson International Airport. So John and Carol are mingling with various people in the coffee lineup now as they make their way to the sanctuary doors for the next conference session. And maybe I'm projecting, but it feels like everyone around me is hoping and praying that they'll stop and talk to them. I hope they'll talk to me. I did request an interview, like a something sit down, something casual while I was here in Toronto, maybe something before or after one of the conference sessions. But I got a no on that one because their schedule was already full during the conference. Totally get it. But I have so many questions I want to ask them. Like, what was it like for them on that first night? How did they manage the huge crowds of people that started showing up? And the media attention. And I definitely want to ask them what they thought 
about how quickly the phenomena was spreading to other churches. The most discernible way that the Toronto blessing was spreading, from what I can tell, is that similar phenomena would break out in the churches of people who had recently returned home from attending services. That's what happened to the pastor's wife at Brownsville Assembly and so many others. That's what happened to Melinda Fish when she and her husband Bill got back to Pittsburgh after their very first trip to Toronto. When we got back to our church, apparently the change was obvious to the congregation because two depressed pastors had left and two renewed, smiling, eager beaver on fire, hungry pastors walked in the back door. And people said, you could you could see it. There was like something had lifted off of you and in its place was this hope and expectation. And then Bill said, now, I, I don't know what's happened. I'm not gonna guarantee anything, but he said, just if you want prayer, we'll just pray for it. Oh my goodness, honey. All of a sudden, everything that had been going on up in that room in Toronto started happening right in our little church. I mean, this is a teeny weeny church. I mean, you haven't seen teeny weeny. We're talking about under 50 people. And all of a sudden, people that I never in a million years expected to see anything happen, they started doing like this, you know, they're and I'm going, what? You know, and they haven't seen the model. They haven't, they hadn't been in the atmosphere. They, it was incredible. I'm telling you, I don't even know how to tell you. I don't know how old you are or what you've seen, but honey, this is real. My next guest this episode saw the Toronto blessing spread to his teeny weeny church too. But before services there were suddenly hijacked by unusual behavior, Dr. Grant Mullen had heard about something remarkable happening at a church near Pearson. When it broke out in January, 94, then my brother, he went right away. He went right away to be in the old building and he phoned me up right away. He says, Grant, this is the most significant spiritual event in our generation. You have to go and see this. I rejected it outright. I I completely ignored it. I just said, no, it sounds too weird. It's crazy. It's an hour away. I live an hour from Toronto. And uh, I wasn't the slightest bit interested. Dr. Grant Mullen was a graduate of the University of Toronto Medical School. Originally, he was an anesthetist. But today, his practice focuses on mental health, specifically mental health in the Christian world. And he may not have initially had any interest in what was happening in Toronto, but that didn't matter because the Toronto blessing was spreading. In May of 1994, my pastor was burning out. We had a very small, utterly dead, dysfunctional, dying church. And uh, so he went to a Wednesday morning pastor's prayer meeting in Toronto. You know, he was a little skeptical because, you know, this is kind of weird and it wasn't part of our fellowship. But uh, they, they were nice. They prayed for each other and he came home and thought it was a positive experience, nothing weird. And so that evening was our Sunday school uh, teachers meeting to plan the summer picnic. It was May of 1994. And, uh, and so at, this, at the end of the Sunday school teachers planning meeting, the pastor just said, oh, he'd been to Toronto and he'd been to this church. 
And so then he was closing in prayer at the end of the picnic meeting, and he felt God speak to him saying, I'm not finished yet. Like, don't close the meeting. I'm not finished yet. And so he said, he said, wait. And while they were waiting, Toronto explodes in the room. Never been to Toronto. Suddenly the presence of God invaded the room. People started to laugh, shake, fall. And it was a spontaneous explosion of what had happened in Toronto. Now, of course, this, is a, this happened all over the world. But it happened in Grimsby, Ontario. And once the phenomena started happening there, in his church in Grimsby, that's when Dr. Mullen decided to see what was happening at Ground Zero in Toronto. I think I visited once in the old building just to see what they were doing. And so I did one of their Wednesday night services, which I thought would be kind of tame. And there were 4,000 people there lining up all down the street. And it was intimidating, to say the least. Dr. Mullen says he didn't go back to Toronto too often because the revival was hopping in Grimsby. So we didn't have to go and wait in line to experience it. And so this started to happen every week. When we would pray for people after the service, the power of God would hit them and they couldn't stand up. And they would hit the floor and have supernatural experiences and see visions. And Jesus would come and heal their hearts of their abuse. And all the people, they were able to start forgiving people they could never forgive. And I was, I was already involved in mental health. And I saw people have psychological changes that just could, should, should have taken years to counsel people out of their abuse experiences and the, you know, all the terrible things from their past. And they just got up off the floor saying, no, Jesus came and visited me and we walked through the woods and he told me what really did happen and I could forgive them, now I'm fine. Like, astonishing. So what do you think? Oh, wait, wait, I'll tell you about the kids. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So these supernatural things were happening upstairs and it was making the services go long because people didn't want to stop worshiping and we would have to flick the lights and tell people no we're done they know we don't want to keep singing so it meant that the children's program was having to go longer to, you know to, so, so the, while the adults are all over the floor and can't stand up and so one time we went after one of these services we went downstairs to get our kids from the kids program and the kids were all over the floor speaking in tongues. I had never seen anything like this. I figured it was just going to be happening upstairs. And the fire of God had come into the children's services and they were hit massively hit. From a medical point of view, can you give us any idea of what is happening inside people in regards to you know, mental health and healing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, what happens is, you mean like when they're on the floor and they have these Yeah, what's oh, happening to them? Oh, oh. it's just that, God, that the, uh, Jesus comes to visit them in their spirit. And he actually, the people were, were actually having conversations with Jesus on the floor. And they would, they would, I mean, they have their eyes closed, but in their mind, they would be walking around with Jesus. And it was, they were having a, a, a supernatural experience like in their imagination, to be technical. So in their imagination, they were having these conversations with Jesus and he was explaining what had happened in their past and how they could forgive and, and how they would be different and he would walk with them. And then they were able to forgive and so they would have an emotional uh, healing. So that, that's what attracted me to what was going on is because I saw transformations in my area of expertise. Of course, Dr. Mullen's medical opinion on what was happening to people on the floor in Toronto, in Grimsby, around the world, 
It's completely filtered through his personal religious beliefs. But I think his insight is important here because it can give us a better idea of what drew so many people to the Toronto Blessing experience. Emotional healing, unconditional acceptance. It also makes sense that having had those powerful experiences, that so many people felt compelled to share it with others in their hometown. As the Toronto Blessing movement grew larger and the river spread to other churches, John and Carol Arnott quickly found themselves welcoming more and more visitors from all over the world. And over time, they developed a list of international followers that they regularly invited to speak at their church, a crack team of speakers. People like John Scotland, a minister from England, and my next guest. That's actually John Scotland you're hearing there, laughing during one of his now iconic Toronto Blessing sessions. It was recorded by my previous guest, T.R. Post, who then incorporated the audio into his song, Sweet Sweet Spirit, which you're hearing right now. T.R. Post was my guest in episode one. He's the one that had the dream about Yogi Bear and the lampshade. Have another drink. Have another drink. You know, in the world, you got problem drinkers. You can be a solution drinker. The solution to all your problems is the new one. In his song, Sweet, Sweet Spirit, T.R. Post is talking about drinking the metaphorical new wine and getting drunk on the Holy Spirit. This new wine was a pretty common theme in John Scotland's Toronto Blessing Sessions, and even he would admit he drank a lot of it. Uh, my name's John Scotland. I live in uh, Liverpool, England, and my ministry is mainly itinerant now, but I was a pastor for 15 years. Before our online chat, I checked out John Scotland's website. On it, there's a quote from a New Brunswick pastor who is clearly a fan. John is not a preacher. He's a prophetic presenter, a communicator whose actions, antics, props, and bursts into song send a multimedia message that makes outbursts of hilarious joy with stunningly profound insights and revelations. I wanted to find out how a minister from Liverpool, an Anglican minister, no less, how did he wind up on the starring lineup of John and Carol's go-to speakers all the way in Toronto? So we started at the beginning, as John Scotland told me about the very first time he heard about the Toronto Blessing. Yeah, I can remember that very vividly. It was about 2 a.m. in the morning here, um, late January. I got a phone call from a friend in Ontario who told me something crazy was happening. That was 94. That was when it first began. The guy who called me, I think what he wanted me to, to confirm was that it was, you know, it wasn't of God. And um, you've got to understand back in, in 94, you know, it was very unusual. You know, this, this, we'd never seen this before. We'd seen it in laughing and, and stuff like that in a sort of smaller measure. But in 94, it was crazy. I mean, really crazy. And if you looked at it with your natural eyes, you felt like you were, you, you know, these people had lost their mind. If people were losing their minds, then John Scotland lost his mind more than the rest. His Toronto Blessing sessions are, with respect, some of the most outrageous, silly, 
and joyful sessions that I've dug up footage of. Not long after first hearing about it, John Scotland and his wife had hopped a plane to Toronto. I I needed to check it out. Um, (laughs) I think the jet lag helped. (laughs) Um, We went straight into the meeting and there's this guy on the floor that was going through all the emotions possible. He looked like a fish out of water. One minute crying, next minute laughing. I thought to myself, I've cast this out of people. Meaning it looked demonic. And especially, it depends how you've been raised. I, you know, I was very serious. I was a pastor, 12 years, very serious. You know, God's work is serious. But when this joy hit me, uh, which maybe is a better word, you know, drunkenness, yeah, but intoxication of joy that just overwhelms you. It makes me feel um, free. You know, no no restrictions, no limitations. And of course, the meetings didn't finish till 2 a.m., so we got back home about 3 a.m., and I sneaked into the room, got into bed, fell asleep, and in the morning I woke up and felt the Holy Spirit at the bottom of the bed fill me from my feet upwards, and I began to speak in tongues. And for a whole day I couldn't speak in English. And then I went back again in in September of 94. And it was really the September meetings, which was a prophetic meeting when they'd moved into the building they're in now, that I really got hit. I was walking through the doors into the meeting room and I heard the Lord say to me, "Uh, what do you want from this meeting? And I said, Lord, I want to get drunk. When John says he wants to get drunk, he means drunk in the spirit. In reality, John says he's never had a single drop of alcohol. Uh, And I said, Lord, I want to get drunk. Like for three and a half years, I couldn't speak. I couldn't put sentences together. Uh, And I was a minister, you know, I was a preacher. I was traveling. That was my living. And yet God was doing stuff through... Although I couldn't speak, I was doing stuff which was like a sign, a wonder, which in the same sense was breaking uh, traditions and boxes and religiosity. But the thing that really uh, struck me was the presence of God. It's a warm feeling, it's peaceful. Uh, It's almost like, it's very, very difficult to describe a heavenly thing with earthly language. I know this sounds crazy, but it feels like just like warm honey, you know, being poured over you. When John mentioned the feeling of warm honey, I immediately remembered what God felt like to me when I was a teenager. And all of this made perfect sense. It was a warm feeling, whatever it was. I felt it in Kelowna. I felt it in Kamloops, standing in arenas with thousands of other teenagers, the keyboard player holding down some heavenly chord that made it sound like angels were worshiping all around us. That was a long time ago, and I don't believe in angels anymore. 
and I felt that same feeling of warm honey at a Coldplay concert. So where does that leave me today? After all of this, what do I think the Toronto Blessing was really all about? Find out next time on the final episode of this season of Heaven Bent. I stopped going to church, and for the next 10 years of my life, there was sex and drugs and blasphemy and education. And I finally get to the bottom of my gold teeth memory. And it all stemmed back from remembering this service in 1999, where a bunch of people from our church said that they had seen gold dust falling from the sky and had received gold Gold teeth. teeth. That's when we discovered that our daughter, Johanna, had received a gold tooth. If God can turn water into wine, he can turn teeth into gold. Oh my God, I found it, I found it, I found it. Local Christians claim divine dentistry.